Listener Production. commentator and journalist Greg Rust and this is Rusty's Garage. For this episode I'm in New Zealand about 70k south of Auckland at a world-class racetrack called Hampton Downs. Enthusiasts have apartments overlooking the circuit here. There's an industry hub with all kinds of automotive businesses too. Toyota New Zealand has its race workshop here and it's where we find the headquarters of drifting legend Mad Mike Wadette. He likes to call it the Mad Lab. The likeable Kiwi has a wildly entertaining driving style that's earned him global recognition with millions of followers. You know, since I started this series, I've noticed a common thread that racing for many of my guests began on weekends with their dads. But in this case, it was Mad Mike's mum who helped kickstart an incredible journey. It was awesome. I mean, we just had a one-bedroom apartment. I had the top bunk and mum was down the bottom and... um, she was very passionate of horses, so every weekend we were off to the farm and I'd play with my little RC radio-control Hornet. I remember the old-school Tamiya um, days, but, yeah, that and some BMX bikes and setting up planks of wood on bricks, and I just went from there. Um, I got a little dirt bike. She brought me a little two-stroke DS80, which she had no idea how to even start, so it's <laughs> really been self-taught since day one to figure out how to start it, and then, you know, after just progression, figure out it had a clutch and actually had gears, like with a gearbox, and, um, yeah, just progressed from there, raced motocross in my teenage years, and um, but, yeah, just always dreaming i guess a kid with a big dream and um some determination to i i really wanted to be a world champion and get to america Um, and i knew that from a very young age my auntie um had sky tv so she would record the camel supercross with like ricky johnson was the ama supercross series and i'd watch it on the vhs and that was that was the dream man to one day make it to america what did that uh, that bike set your mum back, and what whatever became of it? Uh, it was two hundred dollars. <laughs> um, yeah, and I remember, like a, like I say, just figuring it all out myself, and then um, just starting to want to modify it myself as well. So you know, I'd like pull the muffler off and make it louder, and um, you know, doing all the stickers on it. I used to get like the Duracell that you'd wrap your school books with, and hand cut all my own graphics so it like looked like a newer bike and um yeah that was just my pride and joy that's like every weekend i could hop on the spot we didn't live on a farm but um mum had an old ford falcon station wagon and we'd throw it in the back and you know have the half half the bike hanging out the back and had our little dog and that was us we'd go up to the farm and it was great fun how old were you when you went racing for the first time and can you remember where that first meeting was? Yeah, yeah, I was quite intimidated actually by um, the competition but it was more just because of my bike. Um, yeah, it was it was my second bike, it was a little RM80 but it was like early 80s, like full drum brakes, um, you know, didn't even have the seat that rised up onto the tank and <laughs> that would have been about 88, 89 Um 
was the was my first race um but yeah it was a whole lot of fun and i was just hooked from from the as soon as the i mean even there wasn't even a gate drop it was like the rubber band start that uh, i was just so much fun and just like the sound of the two strokes the smell of the two strokes and it just it got me hooked you say you were a little intimidated to begin with, but mate, you were no slouch because there was, uh, you know, a pro junior 85cc New Zealand motocross championship second there, I think it was. I mean, it's something you gravitated to straight away because of that love of the AMA. Yeah, def- like some inspiration back then was Ricky Johnson, um, who's still to this day, you know, he's 54 years old fully supported by Red Bull and races stadium trucks and the, you know, the Lucas Oil off-road racing series up in the States. So those icons to me and inspiration back then are still massive inspiration for me as a driver now looking forward. But um, yeah, I had some really good results. I never once had a brand new bike. In fact, the, when I got second in the New Zealand Nationals, the guy that came fifth, I was on his preview. That was actually his old, old bike. bike. <laughs> so um, yeah, it was... For me, it wasn't really about winning. I was always a bit of a show-off, and I guess not having a father around to tell me to, you know, like I may be leading a race in the last lap, you know, from these watching these VHS videos and see Jeremy McGrath doing these knack-knacks on the last lap and um, Ricky Johnson doing the no-handers, and I was like, oh, man, I want to be that guy. And um, when I, you know, be leading a race and then bust the knack-knack and end up slamming off, losing a couple of positions. But I didn't really care across the finish line and be like all pumped. The crowd are all like into it. This little kid on an 85. Well, back then they were only 80s. But um, for me, like, I just remember the buzz of showing up to an event and being the first 80, because the juniors would always be the first ones out on the track, but just being the first rider to hit the biggest double or the biggest tabletop or the biggest triple, um, and watching everyone like whoa you know and then yeah it was just a, such a such a buzz and to do that i didn't have to have the brand new bikes and um yeah that's i guess where after getting second in the new zealand nationals um it just became too expensive for my mum for the maintenance of you know requiring you know new clutch plates and new tires and just general race prep you know it was, it was expensive and, and hard for mum on her on her budget so um, yeah, I had to give up the racing side of it. Um, and at the same time, was right when I was also young and into rotaries. So that was where the, the passion of rotaries came from was much earlier than that, actually. We had a, like a little family batch down Whangamata. So, you know, with the New Zealand, our summer holidays, uh, it was Christmas time. Um, and so we'd go away for Christmas. And I just remember at a very early age of these teenagers rolling around the beaches and I was man those cars are so cool and figured out what they were and um, yeah so once I gave up motocross I really put in a lot of time and just learning how to build rotaries and building cars and pulling engines out and just the whole mechanics you know and again just all really self-taught just me and my buddies doing it with no sort of role model as a father to, to follow by so just a lot of passion you know to go out there and have fun and just learn things am i right in saying that it was injuries that maybe in the end called a halt to the two-wheel career and there's there were some big ones mate weren't there yeah so yeah from yeah so we yeah we go from building the rotaries and kind of having to give up racing because of the expense to then discovering uh in the late 90s early 2000s was the crusty demons of dirt movement started right and that's the freestyle motocross so these crusty demons of dirt dvds and I was like, "Damn, this is me. This is I can. This is this is how I'm going to get to the states. 
like that dream when I was a kid to get to the States was still there the entire time. But I was like, this is going to be my key to get there. And um, was very fortunate to make, well, I, I went out and high purchased a bike. Um, I was, how, how much? How much is you? I think I was paying like 18 bucks a week or something. And I, I had like 500 bucks deposit um, to get this. Like, it was an old clapped out Honda. It was nothing new for sure. Um, I think so the first freestyle motocross demo was year 2000 and it was at, in New Zealand we have this huge big uh, music festival in January so just after New Year's um, called the Big Day Out and so um, one of the guys I used to race with hit me up and he's like dude I've heard you got a motocross bike again you want to come and do the first ever like freestyle motocross demo at Big Day Out I was like hell yeah so I took down my bike um, and it was a 97 CR125 and um, we they actually flew on a few Aussie guys as well to ride just so there was a few more riders and um, yeah they actually came and they grabbed my bike and thought it was the ghosty bike to just literally throw off the let it go full throttle off the ramp and I'm like whoa 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 bro 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 <laughs> like I pay this thing off man this is my pride and joy so went out there and that event is where the name Mad Mike came from so what you wow the audience with what tricks um, well that was it the commentator didn't even know what they were I didn't even know what they were because like I didn't I wasn't a farm boy. I didn't have anywhere to practice. So I'd learn all my tricks on the day. And um, so the commentator just started calling me like Mad Mike. And I hated it on the day. I'm like, dude, do you have to call me like Mad Mike? It just (laughs) sounds way too cheesy. And then it just stuck, you know. Then the fans, the kids were coming. Oh, Mad Mike, man, you're crazy, you know. And I ended up breaking my arm and then breaking my leg. Like, you know, I was actually just after um it wasn't long after that big day out we got invited up to a guy's 30th birthday party to you know he came up to us at that event and was like dude i gotta have you guys ride at my 30th um and north of just north of auckland and uh so i said well you need to speak to to jason he's the one that he owns all the ramps and stuff but yeah i'm i'm down i'm i'm there so uh, and then it was not about money or anything at all it wasn't even about building up a name the brand like Mad Mike it was just like going to events and being a bit of a show off and um, in being an entertainer it was just an addiction and uh, yeah I ended up going on this 30th birthday and my bike that old Honda seized on the up face of the ramp and literally fell straight off the end at full pace crashed into the DJ's van like the DJ had a van in between our jump and uh, crashed into that and this is the party hadn't even started man that just literally set the ramp up and like I said even from the early days of me being the guinea pig and being the first one to huck the big doubles or the big triples on my 80 was no different I was always I was the one on 125 I used to always ride a 125 because the fans thought that I was hitting the ramp twice as hard as the guys on the 250s but it's just the fact that engines are screaming the pitch of the two stroke 125 and um yeah with the bike slamming into this dj's van and then i flew over did this big flip and landed on my leg and snapped my femur right up the top um and yeah that was a horrible crash like my leg had folded up over my i was literally lying on my calf um and to this day actually i still left leg is still reconstructed with titanium rods and screws and bolts and um i've just been so active i've never actually had it pulled out and it's one of those injuries you can actually get the rod pulled out but then you you know literally the downtime I reckon it's like a year or so before you can really put any weight on it and I've just always been so active I just man I can't stop for a year to wait for my leg to heal and it doesn't bother me to this day you know so um yeah it was just kind of injury upon injury chasing this dream to get to America 
Um, There's some vertebrae too, mate, wasn't there? There's some serious stuff. Yeah, well, 2002, that was um, Vodafone X-Air, um, which was like the New Zealand X Games. Mm-hmm. Or many riders from Australia. We had a couple of riders from the States um, and all the, all the top guys out of New Zealand. Um, and we did really well there in 2001, 2002. Yeah, tried this trick called the steriliser where you kind of do a huge bar hop where you jump through the handlebars and then you come back and land with your feet still over the handlebars. And if you get your transition right, because it's so steep in the landing, mm-hmm. there's actually no impact. So if, even though your feet are hanging over the handlebars and your butt's on the seat, there's really no impact. But the problem was, is I got a huge gust of tailwind and it blew me beyond the, the down ramp. So I flat landed and it's 75 foot from knuckle to knuckle. So I would have jumped 95 foot to dead flat. And then my back took the entire impact and um, yeah, so I made the DVD, well, it wasn't even DVD, VHS back then of um, called Recipe for Disaster. And it was, yeah, huge crash, compressed and fractured four vertebrae on my back. Um, lost all the feeling to my legs, well, everything from my T7 to, well, they told me I was gonna be paralyzed for life from a T7 at hospital so that was a big item there and about the same stage as this part of my life is when I, I met Tony so yeah she was the game changer because she saw the talent and then I was just a bit, bit too loose mm-hmm. with everything and she really like straightened me up to do stuff properly and professionally and um, mainly around the whole car thing you know I um, was always into building these rotaries and building skid cars and that was kind of the buzz as well as doing these like skid fest events and the foreign rotary nationals and like just going and being like really raucous and loud and obnoxious and kind of breaking a few rules and um, yeah so she really straightened me out to still doing the same thing but just you know investing properly in the car and and myself yeah so we we then um, started pursuing the career of drifting when we discovered that there was an actual sport for it. She's been uh, very helpful in me setting up this interview, mate. She's she's terrific. I can see why, you know, um, she's the other part of this whole Mad Mike operation, a very important part. I want to come back to something you touched on a minute ago, and that is the love of four wheels as well, because it would be wrong to say that that was born out of the the injuries or or a necessary turning point you had it from a young age didn't you and it was it a case of like scanning classifieds with mates and buying something that caught your eye cheaply and splitting the cost with them what would tell us about that yeah well it started i mean when when i used to ride that little ds80 i was talking about um my buddy actually my auntie's farm her the neighboring um family they had uh, another boy david that i used to ride with when we were kind of like about 12, 11, 12 years old, um, we'd be riding our bikes and he had an older brother uh, who had like a couple of paddock hack Toyota Crawlers and um, he was about 17, 18. So when he'd go off and party, we'd go and jump in the Toyota Crawler and rip it around the farm and down the race, you know, gravel roads and... Um, what are we talking, early 70s spec, manual? What was yeah, yeah, DX Crawler. So actually the car was a four-door sedan, DX Crawler. We actually, we unbolted the hood and tied a big bit of rope to it. And we'd like, whoever was, one's driving, the other one's like trying to hang onto the hood and we'd slide around the dewy grass and geez, bounce off fence posts. And But it was all learning years, you know, and we learned the discipline of actually sliding sideways from a very early age, being rear-wheel drive and... Um, yeah, it was it was a lot of fun, but uh, to this like 
I guess from you know driving and learning discipline always just grew so four wheels has been there since even the age of 13 you say like scanning the classifieds we used to have the trade and exchange here in New Zealand so every Thursday morning be myself and my buddy um, Mark Tapper actually back then uh, would would be like on the phone at like five thirty in the morning, like whoever has run down to the dairy. You know, there's no cell phones or in- internet or anything back then um, for us. So we'd be on the phone and be like, "Oh yeah, there's a tortoise starlet out west. It's like fifty dollars, or there's a Mazda six two six. You know, over North Shore for a hundred dollars. And as long as it was rear wheel drive, like old school, you used to just be able to pick that stuff up for so cheap. And that would be us, like, while friends would go out and waste their money on alcohol and party, and we would we would go buy paddock hat cars, and we'd take them up to Woodhill Forest, and, um, yeah, we used to be a little bit naughty and cut a few fences to get in, but no one's in there, and that was us. We'd go and spend the weekend and just rip these gravel roads and just really got good at, at drifting. Mm-hmm. And um, Mark actually went on to racing... Competitive. He he raced uh, PWRC, so production world yeah. going Argentina and traveling the world doing that, and um, and then obviously I've pursued my career in driving as well. So it was just the investment and passion to, you know, the, the speed, the the adrenaline of going fast, and that fear element was far far better than any alcohol or drug you could ever buy. You know, so it was just um, that was us. That was where every penny was would go into into cars. Were there brushes with the boys in blue occasionally? Yeah, I would, uh, you know, I'm not going to say no there. And uh, I guess, yeah, I lost my license a few times when I was young. Um, but then there was there was nowhere to, you know, there was no accessibility to, to go to a racetrack and, um, and do this sort of thing. And um, now I think it's so fortunate when we're here, we're at Hampton Downs, we run our grassroots days. I try to do those at least once a month. So open up an area where people can come and learn the skills and do it in a safe environment. You know, we've got fire extinguishers and safety trucks and, you know, the tracks are designed in a way you've got sand traps and tire walls and um, just try to keep people safe because, man, the stuff we used to do was ridiculously dangerous. And now having kids myself, it's, yeah, you want to make sure that they're as, as safe as possible and, yeah, don't, don't want to hurt anybody. Mad Mike and rotaries seem just indelibly linked mate it's you where's that love come from what was the attraction to it what was the first one that caught your eye uh it was the sound and uh, i remember the first one actually was at the farm where my mum used to go horse riding and a guy had a it was a 76 mazda rx4 like i would have been seven and i can still remember this and uh, it was the rx4 coupe and he used to tow this not many people are going to believe this but he used to actually tow a single horse float behind it and he would tow his uh, his wife's horse around and i just remember the note of this rotary engine was like what the hell is the motor in that car <laughs> and um that was what got me hooked to then yeah going um i mentioned before about the batch down in Fongamata where we'd go down and new years and you know see the kids all the teenagers hooning around and you know, Toyota Crawlers and RX3s and RX2s and with rotary engines and, um, yeah, it was the sound and the smell and the performance, you know, they were so cheap. My first one, actually, I paid 100 bucks for an old 1970s, uh, it was this 1978 Mazda 323 four-door hatch with a bug-eye front and the big round lights and um, 
we swapped a, a skateboard and a hundred bucks for a fully crashed RX-7, which had the rotor engine. And then we, you know, just figured me and the mates just figured out how to, we swapped the, you know, cable clutch, the hydraulic clutch and, you know, pull this rotor engine out of this RX-7. And before we knew it, we had this, we called it an RX-323. So a rotary powered 3D3 hatchback. And this was well before I even had a license to drive on the roads. So, um, that was, uh, I guess that's some of the reasons why I lost my license at an early age was just the fact of just the passion of building cars and um, having fun. And I guess not having a father around to tell me I was kind of doing the wrong thing. Of course, mum said this is probably not the best thing to be doing, but um, I guess the freedom mm. I had is what's really led me to where I am now. You love, and you've touched on this a little bit already, the, the engineering side and clearly that, that's come about from these early tinkerings. What were the learnings in the beginning in, in the early days with rotaries? What things that you you know learned that, hey, we can't really do that or that's pushing it too far or, or, um, or did you? Yeah, I guess it wasn't until well, we used to just you know build our own motors and like drill port them as they call it it's just to get the like lumpy idle and do whatever we could to get the performance and rotaries are known to be you know, many people say, oh, they're unreliable, but it's like anything, if you're doing it yourself on a limited budget and you don't really know what you're doing, anything's going to be unreliable, you know, and it, like rotaries just attract so many youngsters. And that was exactly, I mean, yeah, our cars were unreliable back then, but we're literally just putting drill bits through the housings and side plates to, you know, make them rowdy and try to get more power out of them. And, um, yeah, and that was all through my teenage years. It was wasn't until I met Tony when we actually, you know, she taught me about actually saving money mm-hmm. and investing, and um, you know, selling a few things to like then purchase better things and investing in one thing at a time. Um, so that was when we could actually start building decent motors, and we were actually investing more time. I then started working like a lot harder, you know, to, to be able to f- fund and fuel my passion for drifting. You know, I was working at Treescape from 5.30 to 5.30, doing 12-hour shift, climbing trees, like super active physical job and dangerous. Um, oh, and you're doing lopping trees? Yeah, cutting trees down and, the, you know, hanging out of heli. I got really, really good. My uncle was, uh, you know, fortunate when I was young. My uncle, he owns Treescape, mm-hmm. and um, he pulled me a line, you know, when I was getting a bit of trouble. And um, Did you say a moment ago you were hanging out of helis doing some of this? What did you say? Oh, yeah, so, yeah, I got – I was just – man the fear element of hanging out of helicopters and hanging off cranes or you know up these huge big 80 foot pines and cutting the trees down like just the danger and fear element had me hooked and here I was I'd finished a sign writing apprenticeship doing like vinyl wraps and all that but then when my uncle got me in to his work I was just hooked on this the whole fear element of of hanging out of helicopters and cutting trees down and um, six years later, here, here I was still climbing trees, driving trucks, operating diggers, and um, we'd finished work at like 5.30, and then my uncle had his own fabricating workshop where they'd build all the trucks for Treescape. So um, I learned the discipline of like how to weld and <clears throat> mechanics pulling gearboxes out of trucks, and it was just it was more money and it, for me to be able to go and do what I wanted to do. And it was more learning sets. So here we are now with my own headquarters at Hampton Downs and able to do a lot of work on these cars myself. 
from all the fabrication and grafting and you know building these things putting the motors and stuff together i mean we have a an elite team that build our motors for um the racing so they'll come out of pulse performance that build our blocks but a lot of it i'm, I'm able to do hands-on but as as it went from a hobby into an actual business of of this racing it was when we started needing to employ uh, actual experienced people but those early years I just I learned so much uh, you know life skills and in, in general you've got a great appreciation for the history of, of motorsport particularly drifting how did the obsession start was it magazines DVDs <laughs> what got you hooked on it yeah um, magazines for sure was a big inspiration uh, like well sorry where I got a lot of inspiration from Um yeah, diff- didn't have the internet. I mean, I didn't even have a mobile phone when most people had mobile phones through their teenage years. But um, it was, yeah, magazines, performance car magazine, actually still to this day, you know, we st- still pick up, you know, this, what I can read on the, uh, when I find some time is sitting down on a plane and traveling to Japan or USA or wherever we're off to. So I still enjoy the reading side of it and looking at pictures and getting inspiration. But um I guess that was where it was from and then the motocross side of things was the the VHSs from Sky TV obviously broadcasting the the Camel Supercross AMA Supercross series. If you had to describe drifting to someone I mean it, it is there's a competitive element to it but there's this wonderful artistic thing about it too isn't there mate from the way you control the car what you're expected to do what's the way you'd best sum up the sport to perhaps a newcomer? I think like I mean drifting is a whole another dimension of the cut like to a circuit racer once it's broken traction they're they're out of control and they're just hanging on it's what they don't want to do yeah where there's that whole other dimension of being of control of before the car actually spins out Mm -hmm. um but it's just it's for me it's the most explosive wild craziest most insane way to watch a car or drive a car um for me, there's three different styles of drifting that I do throughout the year. There's mm-hmm. the competition element, which I thrive on um, to prove, you know, to prove we're the best driver out there, and the, the tandem format and the showcase to the fans, and showing that close proximity where we're judged on our line, speed, angle, and style. Um, so the judges give us, you know, a set line of a course, whether it's a USA, you know, NASCAR track, and we they want you high up on the bank with as you know, executing as much angle and speed and you know, violence sort of driving, and and every driver's got their own style, their mm-hmm. own character, and that's what I love about drifting as well is just the all the different characters and the, like the personality you can actually show through a car like I feel like building a car and driving a car I can show my personality through the sound and the, the style um, so there's that side of drifting then there's the you know the demo side of it which again is totally different sort of driving style where you can kind of drive to how um, the fans really want to see rather than impressing the three judges mm-hmm. this time you now can impress the 30,000 fans or however many fans are in the grandstands and really and, accentuate and, stuff re- yeah yeah that's it really show what they want to see and and um, give them their 20 bucks worth that they've whatever they've paid to come through the gate and see what's going on so that that side is really fun and for me to me at a showcase drifting to you know we've been very fortunate to show it to Goodwood Festival of Speed and introduce it to you know Formula One V8 supercars 
um, events and circuits have been the first to drift on, like Yas Marina, and actually here at Hampton Downs, the first one to lay double black lines around the track. So uh, those two, and then of course there's the film shoots. So doing the Red Bull film shoots, we were able to you know kind of Google and search the most crazy, dangerous roads around the world and. Um, execute these amazing film clips and that's where I can really showcase and express my style of driving and my vision of what I see drifting should be so between those it's, a, it's three very different styles but that's um, what fills up my year He's just given you that description with the brightest smile on his face. You can sense how much he loves it. We'll get to the garage in a minute and some of the, the key cars for you but I want to talk about the cockpit and the technique, you know, for fans that are watching, it's a joy to watch some of the the vids, mate, and and where you look when you're driving, and the technique between pedals, brake. What are you doing, and how much of that is feel from what you did as a youngster, what you described before? Yes, yeah, so watching drifting from the outside, when you see it on TV, it looks very slow and smooth and fluent, and um, I think when you well, if you, if you see any in-car footage, you can see it's far from that. It's the total opposite, the sound, the scream, and then just the actual coordination of the drivers is absolutely insane. And I can watch in-car footage of myself and don't even realise, like, what I'm doing, and it's all just natural instinct. Mm. And I think it doesn't matter whether you're a skateboarder or a BMXer or, or whatever you're doing, you're, you've, your sport, you've got a tool, whether it's a ball or a bike. Uh, a car for me my tools are, are a steering wheel mm-hmm. i got a shifter and a, and a handbrake hydraulic handbrake hydraulic handbrake and then i've got three pedals a, a throttle a, a brake and a clutch in between all those tools it's really about just making that car an extension of your body mm-hmm. and then once you've once you've got that it's like you can almost just place the car and throw it as hard as you can and you you find that absolute extremes and as a driver i think what's the scariest part is the technology is progressing faster than the drivers like it's seriously scary to drive these cars these days with the with drifting as much as it looks like that we want the cars to be slippery so we can slide around the track we're actually trying to get as much grip as possible and if a driver you've just got to overcome that amount of grip so with the suspension technology i mean we were running these kw shocks out of germany which are full three-way adjustable high speed low speed bump rebound everything's fully offset depending on different tracks you know the tire companies now are all investing and developing the most crazy sticky compounds of of rubber um you know your wheel alignments the steering geometry and they really are frightening vehicles to drive You know, when we talk about our MX-5 is 1,200 horsepower to the tyres. And that's literally just, it needs that much power to overcome the amount of grip. So, yeah, the, the development of the cars is just, it's, it's gone 10, like every year, you know, we've gone up to the States and it's just like, it progresses so, so much. The human side of that interests me then because with that growth in the development, you're obviously convincing yourself, yes, we can go further, we can go harder. Where's fans have asked this on social media before I came to see you today? Where, where is the limit, mate, in, in, in all of this? And is there one? I don't think there is a limit. I mean, 
like I say, the progression and all these parts and, and just, you know, they, as much as I'm a, I'm a driver and can I, I mean, I can only drive as hard as I can drive, but every time we hop in the car, you know, the team have found out a way to get more grip or, you know, whether it's, you know, adjusting the rebound on one side to flick the car harder to get more side bite or, you know, running different shocks and spring rates and sway bars and different wheel alignments and, um, yeah, it really, really is crazy. And I, every time you think there's, there's, that's the limit, well, the cars just get more grip and you can swing it harder and throw it harder and execute more angle. And I mean, now some of these corners, like, you know, there's the few videos and that of the, the reverse entry of us doing like backwards entries. And we're literally now able to throw a car 180 degrees backwards at speeds, you know, up to 200 kilometers, well, over 200 kilometers an hour. And the car will fully come back from, from it, which is just like mentally that wouldn't think it's possible when you're in the car and you're driving and you learn that platform that you're driving and just turn that into an extension of your body it just then becomes natural instinct and it's 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 easy well i wouldn't say it's easy it's just it's like you you have the confidence in the car to be able to push that hard this is greg rust and you're listening to rusty's garage more with mad mike in a moment In this series, I speak to some of the most passionate riders, drivers, designers and collectors I know, like Scott McLaughlin. The Kiwi Supercars champion is a huge talent in and out of the car. Although there have been some speed bumps along the way, like the time he and his sister crashed a new car before they were even old enough to drive. Just so happened Dad had parked his brand new club sport. It was only about three or four days old down the bottom of this hill. And little did we know, Sam's dropped the handbrake for some goddamn reason. I've popped it into neutral. And the thing's just fired down the hill straight into the door of Dad's car. The, the, the dealership were amazing about it. There was damage on the car, damage on Dad's car. They pulled it back. It was bad. We, we got out of the car, ran separate directions, blamed each other. Um, Dad was so angry, though. This is the best part of the story. He was so angry that he... He put us in the car. He's like, get in the car, rah, rah, rah. He's like, he's so angry with you. He slammed the door that hard, it popped the dent out. And there's no scratches or anything. It just popped the dent out. So we actually didn't get in much trouble. And, and, the, and the dealership were really good about it. Listen to the full episode with Scott McLaughlin here on Rusty's Garage. Blow off valve. An aftermarket part added to increase the audible noise of excess air being released from a turbocharger when the throttle is released. Common side effects can be excessive accelerating and unnecessary gear changes from the driver. So let's get to your garage because it's super impressive. What's the car competitive car count now? And they're all around the world, mate, aren't they? <clears throat> yeah, we have a... I mean, very fortunate now to be partnered with some of the world's biggest brands and since being partnered with Red Bull and then yeah, as of um, recent, well, the last five years, having Mazda International like Factory come on board for support has just been unreal. And people ask, what's your dream car? Well, every one of my cars at that state when we built it was... The pinnacle was the dream, you know. From the first one, we were able to. <clears throat> the wildest thing we could think of was there was no Mazdas drifting. And I was like, let's get an RX7 and make it camo. I was always known for my camouflage, and we'd just get rattle cans and paint our RX3s and stuff. So it was like, let's get an RX7 and do it camo and do it naturally aspirated three rotor. Like <clears throat> that was the dream back then. And 
slam it out with all these like Japanese big deep dish wheels and every progression and every generation of each car really is the dream at that that point in my life so we've got a huge fleet of you know pro cars and demo cars and even street cars that we build do i dare ask is there a favorite among them or you can't play favorites? yeah i mean they're all you know depending on what you're doing whether you're doing competition or demonstrations or video shoots there's definitely favorites but um you know if, if i had to get rid of the entire fleet and keep one there is for sure one which i'd I would keep hands down as the Mad Bull, which was the original car, and I just think it's, you know, the the touch and feel of that car, and it really was the car that set the name like Mad Mike and Stone um, in the drifting community, and um, that car has literally travelled the world with me so many times. It's been to you know the states numerous times, Singapore, Malaysia. It's been Abu Dhabi and Dubai, Japan, it's UK, Norway, sweet like it really has been around the world and has more stamps in its passport than most humans. Um, and now we've done this whole big tribute with that car with my favourite car being a Mazda RX-3 from the 70s um, and then doing the, the old retro throwback of the graphics um, and working with Rocket Bunny to be able to design all the body kit and rotiform of the um you know retro style wheels and uh just it really is like if mad mike was a car that's that's me that's me right there and um hence why you know just last weekend we're up at goodwood festival of speed and we're celebrating uh, Lord March well the Duke of Richmond now has 25 most memorable moments of 25 years of Goodwood Festival of Speed and we were selected in that top 25 when we introduced drifting to the event and um, that was in the Mad Bull uh, five years ago so the car is um, wowed crowds all around the world and um, even just the engine yes yeah, it's, it's probably the baby of the fleet being 537 horsepower absolutely like zero torque but it's the motor that when I was young, the Mazda 787B Le Mans car, which won Le Mans in 1991, um, Le Mans then banned the Mazda rotary engine. And to this day, it's still the only Japanese manufacturer to ever win a Le Mans. But for me, that is just the ultimate sounding motor is the naturally aspirated four rotor. And that's the heart that lies in Mad Bull. Tell me a few more of the tech specs in the car makers fans love it. And as you say, you've, you've cleverly uh, blended a bit of love for the early RX3 into the overall look of the machine too, haven't you? Yeah, so the the cosmetics of the car now, um, we're very fortunate to work with Kei Murasan, who's a great friend um, out of Kyoto up in Japan. Um, he's the owner of Rocket Bunny, and to many that don't know, he actually designs and does the body kits for over 40 different companies out of Japan. So very, very talented man that we're able to... Uh, CAD design, you know, from Mazda supplying the 3D the 3D drawings of the cars, being able to load them into his program, uh, working with Rotiform on all our wheels and then punching in the offsets and um, then be able to create our absolute dream look on computer to then goes into this giant CNC machine which then lathes out like, well, machines out a big polystyrene block which then turns it into the negative mould um, and then be able to produce you know a vision from designing it all on on computer 
so there we were able to design and and graft a 1970s rx3 onto an fd like 1992 fd rx7 and actually make it look like it's meant to be um and fit so we've actually we've we've kind of cartooned the front of the rx3 and made it a little bit more blunt and stout and more aggressive um and that also helps it fit with the lines but uh, it's kind of been able to make it a bit more of a cartoon character and um yeah express my vision can we bounce through a couple of the others um in the garage we've talked mad bull let's talk bad bull based on the rx8 how different to drive give us a sense of the horsepower and so on yeah so before we get to the specs of that car like bad bull was the second car which we built um once red bull came on board and then uh, at the same time getting more invites to go overseas uh, being here in New Zealand, we're so far away. You know, we would lose our car for four weeks, uh, and a it'd be you know floating across the water on a ship to head to USA or Japan or wherever it was. And there's four weeks, like I can't do anything because the car's just sitting in the container. Mm. Um, so the need came of building a second car, and sat down with Red Bull then, and I was like, look, what's what's the most important? Is it getting results or you know, putting on a show and and doing what I believe is, you know, keeping the fan engagement and doing something different. And um, they were totally behind my back on doing something different and executing something that no one had ever done before. So I was like, instead of building an identical RX-7 to what we already had, which would mean I'd have the best um, chance of winning each event if I'm hopping in that same platform, was to build, you know, pretty much what many would consider the rx8 from mazda going from a high performance twin turbo rotary rx7 to their next production car which was non-turbo four-door pretty much what most would consider your wifey's shopping sports sedan Mm. um but turning that into an absolute drift monster so red bull were totally behind my back on it we purchased an rx8 and yeah pulled all the factory uh, uh, 13b out of it which is no more than 174 horsepower um and put a 800 horsepower three rotor 20b big turbo sequential gearbox fully custom made our own wide body um all the steering arms knuckles like everything had to be self-made we did it all in house you know um and that's one thing that from day one like not having a role model has been fun in the fact that we we are the pioneers of of creating these uh, these cars and mm-hmm. and being again self taught you know so we we you know cut and modify a steering knuckle and put it in where we couldn't ask the guy down you know three three pit lanes or three pit garages down uh, what steering knuckles he's using and what spring rates he's running and you know what all the bits and pieces which make competitive drift cars it was really like we're just figuring it out ourselves so bad bull um was like i say the second car and there was no one had a drift rx8 so um it was cool to just be able to develop that car to um actually that on its debut season won the nz drift um championship um didn't finish any less than third place so it podiumed at every event um, and that was really cool to, you know, have that car created from scratch and just be bang competitive straight out the bat to its second year, um, signing a deal with Red Bull and Need for Speed to be in the game and do a, um, a full season of Formula Drift, which is the pinnacle of, of drifting. It's the Formula One of drifting and send the car up to USA. Humble by 
you know, they've all got the the term bull woven into their, their yep. names, which is cool. But the name suggests something quiet and I guess, you know, what a lot of Japanese are known for. But in fact, the car's the antithesis of that, mate, isn't it? It's yeah, humble is absolutely insane. And, and you say about the, the bull in- integrated into the name of all the cars. So that was from Mad Bull. Obviously, the, the um, collaboration and partnership with Mad Mike and Red Bull. So if here in New Zealand, we only have six characters on our license plates. On plates so, yeah, so yeah. hence why the Bulls always only have one L on the end. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, Bad Bull was the RX-8. And then so that we progressed around. It's always trying to think of a name for each car. And it's like I was talking about before, the personality of the cars. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was actually the easiest car to name was humble being the japanese kawato san that that builds the car for us in japan and um you know maintains and runs runs the entire um, maintenance and program in, in japan for us uh, and just the japanese in general are just the most humble people so it was um it was an easy name and it's really cool because the car is literally the total opposite of being humble being <laughs> again well over a thousand horsepower four rotor twin turbo runs hollinger six speed sequential gearbox winter's quick change all the kw suspension like the car is an absolute animal um so it fits you know having this like humble license plate as such on it what is that thing like to drive, mate? It is just, it's, I can't pick it is what I call it. And that's, what does per- that mean? that's perfection in, in Japanese. So there is, I believe, like no bit, I hop in that car and it's funny, I'll come in from a run and Kwaro-san will ask um, uh, Sumo-san, what would you like to, what should we change? Mm. And um, I, I'm like, it's perfect. Come picky. It's, that's, so I come in from a run and I'm like, I don't know what to try because it just feels it really is the ultimate extension of my body. And it's a car which I don't even have to think about when I'm driving. A lot of cars like uh, the MX-5, which was our world championship car, the little MX-5, which was crazy, crazy car. But the whole time, though it's very competitive, you're constantly fighting it. It's just such a crazy automobile where humble I don't think about the car at all I'm very aggressive when I drive the car but I'm not thinking about that side of thing it's it's really weird it's just really all natural instinct driving that car at one with it come back to the the MX-5 for me uh, for a moment just expand on that a little bit for the fans um, and the work that's gone into it and what you call it Um, so Rad Bull this was um, something I wanted to do was head back up to Formula Drift. Um, you know, it's I've been very fortunate to receive some pretty awesome uh, contracts to lie on front of the table to sign to go back to Formula Drift, obviously being the pinnacle of drifting. Um, but one to myself, I always believe in, you know, the things I've represented, the, the passion that's lied with me since being a little grom of those rotaries and... Um, I really wanted to go back to the States and show them what we have as a team and just the unique style out of New Zealand and our knowledge as a team to be able to piece together a world championship car. So hence why I had a five-year hiatus from Formula Drift to be able to put these programs together with uh, Mazda and Red Bull and all the partners that were on board. And that was where Project Red Bull came from. So not only going up there and competing, I wanted to showcase to my fan base like everything that goes into building a pro drift car. 
everything we had learned why we use such specific parts like steering knuckles and why we are trying to find like you know certain geometry and uh, alignments and why we use gearboxes and need such close ratios and it was uh, a fun project we did with Radbull, a full YouTube series called Project Radbull. And I was able to showcase, you know, no secrets, but this is everything we know. And we're putting it into this car to take on the world's best. Um, and the revealing shoot was a, a clip which we did down at Highlands. So I met Tony Quinn and um, wanted to drift his track, which is to this day my favorite drift track on the planet. And I got two laps into the film shoot. Of course, you know, I'm wanting to push 100% straight out the bat to get the banger shots like straight away. And a brand new car, which I had literally driven one lap around Highlands on the second lap, I went flying off the track at about 200 kilometers an hour, put myself into a tire wall, put myself in a hospital, fully knocked out, crushed liver, urinating blood, and what we thought had absolutely destroyed and totaled the car. Um, the crash we didn't show for two years actually until we released my mad life documentary um so the car we discovered with our knowledge we built a very fast violent and dangerous car but still what i believe was a a very strong platform to take to the states so i'd got myself out of hospital the team had finished the car we missed the first round of the championship uh, but we put the car on a plane we made it up to atlanta for the second round and this being my second time ever driving the car after obviously only doing those two laps and went out there and qualified fourth at the pinnacle of of drifting formula drift so that was just insane like massive goosebumps for myself like even just talking about it because of the the fear element in that car mm. um but then progressive you know we went through that year every round we we're in the top 16 which is a you know it doesn't sound like much, but to be in the top 16 at that level with a car with no data, no testing, um, is a very credible result and a testament to how amazing my team are to be able to, you know, just get the data as fast as possible, try different things with the car and get the results um, to the second year competing in the car to get third overall in the World Drifting Championship. So Rad Bull's been um, still to this day the scariest scariest freaking car I've ever driven and hence why we used it just not long ago to put Daniel Ricciardo in the passenger seat and let him experience what drifting is all about. You did that at Albert Park. That was quite a mission, that activation, mate, wasn't it? Because invariably in those situations you are tight for time, you've got to kind of get it bang on quickly, you, you and not to mention all the, the box ticking I would imagine you had to do to get that thing over the line. Yeah, well, that's where, you know, it's again... The professionalism on the side of our team and doing everything correct mm. um, to get Daniel Ricciardo to hop in the passenger seat is just amazing. But to be able to do it at a Formula One event, mm. you know, it was their setup day and it was very limited. They literally gave us two laps, so they said, "Look, we're going to throw Daniel in. You know, go out, do your warm up lap, and then just give him a flying lap." And I'm like, "Look, I'm going to do one warm up lap by myself." just kind of get a quick grasp as what 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 you can do in one lap and then i'm going to come in give me a fresh set of tires fresh you know top up the tank strap daniel in and then i'll just do the one flying lap and um that was what we did we executed a pretty amazing clip considering we had one one lap but it just shows the production side of it for these video clips like how many cameras and the helicopters and 
um, it's just a testament to the Red Bull guys and their production crews. Um, but yeah, and just making sure that there's, you know, my mental focus is something which we've been working on a lot over the last couple of years with um, sports psychology and, and mental and physical, my own fitness as well. And just making sure everything is like 100%, like that's so I can lay it down as, as perfect as I can. Was the Highlands crash in drifting terms the biggest one for you? And you talked about the mental side a moment ago. What are the learnings from that? How do you block that out? How does, you know, Mad Mike come back and be as aggressive as ever? That was the biggest crash I've had by far. Um, I mean, we've had some pretty big crashes, but yeah, the mindset is a huge one. And I think from, you know, 2013 when we did the Conquer the Crown uh, with Mad Bull racing over the Crown Range here in New Zealand, that was the first time I actually really felt fear, like really deep fear. Just the speed, 232 kilometers an hour, cliff drops, um, just absolutely zero room for error. Um, you know, you do that on a racetrack, you slide off exactly like what happened to Highlands. Mm. You've got sand traps, you've got tire walls, you've, you're in a pretty safe environment um, where you know you slide off the road doing those sort of speeds on and doing these film shoots it could easily be game over not just for the car but for myself so to get you to block that like fear element and the focus is not something I can just tell you how to do like over it's a lot of training um, and it's it takes a lot of investment from from skill set. So I've been working with um, Hamish, who's been really, really good over the last two years with being able to get myself mentally focused. He works with many um, successful athletes from the All Blacks and stuff as well. So um, he's been huge. And then even right down to nutrition with Jake um, on what you eat and just – it's crazy. Like it's just like my car. If I'm running – 10% boost or well, 10% off my boost because well, the fuel's not right. It's exactly the same as my a human body. If your fuel's not right, the, the body can't work um, 100%. So this is something I've been learning over the last couple of years and um, just really wanting to invest in myself to make sure I'm the strongest athlete because I know the team are putting everything they can in to make sure we've got the strongest car. So me obviously being the one in control, I need to make sure I'm just as good as the car is. As you and I sit here, there is a cool, I think it's an RX2 outside in the in the garage at Hampton Downs. There are utes in the in the collection as well. And one thing that fans would have seen on, on Instagram is that you've built some Something that you can take people for rides for, haven't you? Tell us about that. Ah, uh, yeah. So that was, you know, actually, that's something else. That's another side of of my career, and um, you know, that I'm able to offer to others. And we do many charity things, and work with you know, Race for Life, and um, you know, um, Southern Stars. And the best thing is actually being able to put. Uh, people in the passenger seat whether it's just Joe Blog from the public or you know your friends family your sponsors and um, let them experience the speed of drifting over 200 kilometers an hour and that excitement so the thing was is that a drift car has only got two seats so you've got you know the, the guys hop out and they're like yelling to their mates like oh man that was the sickest thing I've ever done <laughs> but they can't experience it together so that's where we built the mad cab so we got a 1980s uh, Mazda Loose and converted 13B turbo rotary into it um, and the first of its kind to have a full pro roll cage full bucket seats in the back so it says four bucket seats fully harnessed 
and um, we can rip around the track sort of four up. So it's a whole lot of fun. And um, yeah, we're able to use that at, you know, here at Hampton Downs, we use it at all our drift force days, still able to get out there and play with a lot of the local guys. So it's something I miss. Actually, it's competing against a lot of the New Zealand guys now with just such a huge um, schedule of international events. Mm. It's great to be able to come back and play around with my, the guys that I used to compete with. You've dabbled a little bit in circuit racing in, in recent time as well. And I spoke to Shane Van Gisbergen for this podcast, the 2016 Supercars champion. He said, because it's the antithesis really of, of drag racing, it's com- of drifting rather, completely different to what you normally do. He came, was it here at Hampton Downs? You did some training with him. And in what car did he put you in? Oh, yeah. So, I mean, when when TQ here at Hampton Downs, you know, over a casual lunch and coffee, um, said, oh, oh, man, you should drive my freaking McLaren. <laughs> I was just like instant goosebumps. But at the same time, like if I'm going to take on this opportunity, like I do nothing by halves. So got in touch with SVG and said, look, man, Quinny's given me an opportunity to jump in his GT3 McLaren and race at the Hampton 101. Um, dude, I need to learn how to drive straight. Straight. <laughs> um, so, yeah, he was keen as. He's like, yeah, meet me at Hampton on a certain day. We came down here, um, brought all my race suit, helmet, everything down, of course, and he shows up the, like, 100-horsepower Quarter crawler station wagon. <laughs> I'm just thinking, like, what the hell? Like, what are we meant to learn in this? I'm hopping in a GT3 McLaren, it's like half a million dollars worth of vehicle. What am I going to learn in a hundred horsepower Toyota crawler front wheel drive station wagon? But um, we ran in that till like lunchtime, and man, it was unbelievable how much I learned because not the fact that it was in slow motion, but just when you're playing with in, in circuit racing, you're playing with tenths, you know, mm-hmm. to beat your opponents uh, um, it was really really good we spent the afternoon in the Hampton Downs uh, rides Lamborghini Hurricane which was really really good to get out in the Arvo and um, speed things up a little bit but uh, yeah working with SVG was really good I mean he's obviously a very talented driver what blew me away as a recent was just his uh, ability to be able to work out the strategy especially for you know GT racing and endurance racing where like on the run yeah, when we're going to pit stop, what lap we, we need to fuel and um, what's, you know, the suspension settings and, you know, just changing the whole car. That's what really impressed me. A lot of people just see SVG as obviously an amazing driver out there able to win races and, and championships, but it's far beyond the skill set of just being able to pedal a car mm-hmm. and work out that whole strategy side of it, and that was really interesting. So, um that that actual event, my my debut in a GT3, I went out there and I qualified in the top ten. We were qualified seventh, um, and then we finished in the top ten with Clark Quinn, um, and Clark went on to win the championship that year. So it was cool to be a small part, a very small part of him winning. It. Obviously, the championship was a long road, but um, to be in there and help get the car in the top ten at that event. Um, was very humbling of myself um, but then to receive another invite to go down to Highlands race at Highlands and then to Phillip Island and um, the most recent was at, at back to Highlands for the final round last year and to be paired up with SVG um, and go out there and work with him was just amazing you know we've set the car up 
uh, on qualifying day, SVG was second fastest by the smallest amount. Mm. And that night at dinner, he decided to, uh, he was talking about changing spring rates. And I'm like, man, the car feels like so good as it was. Um, but he took the punt and his confidence to be able to go for a huge change actually in spring rates to go out there. And then instantly the next morning, he was the fastest on the track and we were not far behind to then go out in the race. I jumped in the car and was able to lead 27 of the 100 laps um, until, well, on the 27th lap, I actually got taken out by um, a fellow Kiwi driver, which was unfortunate, you know, considering there was only like four or five Kiwis in the race and we were coming around to actually lap him. So a lap driver, which we had passed, um, and then two corners later wiped us out of the race and the car was beyond fixable as it broke the mounts off the subframe. But for my confidence level, it was awesome to know that we had the pace to be able to, you know, we battled up front with Dominic Story, who won the championship. Um, and I think just, yeah, like I say, just the the investment of time and taking on everything. You know, if people are investing in me, I want to make sure I'm the best you know, I'm a great investment for them themselves. So um, from all the training and watching YouTube clips and, you know, meeting with SVG and, you know, even Greg Murphy was a massive help as well. And that first day, man, here at Hampton Downs, I just could not believe the support from um, from all the teams and the, the drivers. Um, so it was really cool to, to give back to TQ for their massive investment and risk, of course, like putting some wild drift driver into it one of his GT3s to go out there and um, yeah it was pretty cool like after the first qualifying session to come in and have Quinny just come up and give me a big hug and say you fucking make me so proud (laughs) that was really really cool moment and um, yeah so it's exciting exciting times ahead of course I've been offered to do some more GT3 racing but it's such a busy schedule and trying to balance drifting with you know racing and then of course the kids um, and Lincoln with his racing now, so it's uh, life's a big balance. TQ, who you mentioned uh, a moment ago, is Tony Quinn, owner of Hampton Downs here and been owner of Darrell Lee, VIP Pet Foods, passionate motor racing guy. And I can see why you and Shane get on so well, mate, because like you, he's got a deep appreciation of, of race history and he loves the, the engineering side of it. I want to come back before we finish this chat on a couple of things. Firstly, you mentioned Goodwood Festival of Speed before. You've absolutely wowed them over there, mate took over the Instagram account uh, again this year. Um, that video of you with the 360 burnout at the end, hanging out the car <laughs> on the phone, not something we want kids to try at home. Yeah. Mate, that was super cool. How did you pull that off? Oh, it's just, I don't know, just again, just thinking like what, always trying to have no leader or just think what's well, a little bit different. And last year we did um, Vaughan Gitton Jr. and Chris Forsberg, who are, are two buddies, um, they're both very close friends up in the States. They're in Drift Alliance, which is a, a big drift crew up there. And they kind of came down and we're doing their like um, tandem donuts together. And uh, we're in our little pocket rocket Radbull MX5. And I was like, oh, yeah, I'll join in on the party. So just whap, sort of launched into it. And we did this three up donut thing. We just, just went absolutely viral. It was crazy. It was like one of the most viewed clips from Goodwood Festival of Speed of 2017. And then so this year, I was like, oh, what's next? You know, what, what can I do? And I was like, oh, man, you know, now with Instagram and the whole um, live live streaming is is so important and it's great for the fans. 
I was like, oh, let's, I'll pull out my phone and do like full live selfie mode of me ripping some donuts sitting, <laughs> running rodeo on the, in the Mad Bull. So yeah, we ripped that out and um, a whole lot of fun. And like you say, yeah, it's just a clip that again went global. And I think that's what, you know, with Goodwood Festival of Speed, just thinking outside the box and just showcasing what we have is drifting. I said burnout before I met Donut, by the way, and that's an amazing event. What is, do you know it, the tyre count for you? Because you must have smoked some tyres over time. Oh, yeah, that's that's ridiculous. I think I'd smoke through in one weekend more tyres than what most people would use on their road cars in, a, in their entire lifetime. Um, yeah, I mean, to give you an idea, one event is about 40 to 50 tyres. Um, and now the compounds being so soft, um, they just burn so quick. Um, but it's just all on that hunt for, for grip and speed. Result you're most proud of? I mean, as we sit here in your office at Hampton Downs, we're surrounded by some incredible memories, mate, some great trophies, and there's still more memories I know you want to you wanna make. Thing you're proudest of so far? Um, man, that's a really, really hard one. I mean, we've just, like we've talked about, I've travelled to so many countries, but um, I think the most thing I'm proud of is just being able to, represent New Zealand to be honest and and prove to other youngsters that you don't have to have a huge budget to um, fulfill your dreams you just need the dream and then the passion to work hard and a bit of determination will get you to where you are I mean we've now been out of travel the world and from doing dream projects with Red Bull of you know finding the most craziest roads from here in New Zealand to South Africa and Denmark and you know competitions taking on the world's best in formula drift and winning events you know all around the world to being able to drift on different tracks um you know they're all very very proud moments um but to be honest there's nothing brings a bigger smile to my face than seeing my 10 year old son win a race and um and his little trophy cart you know so sometimes it's the more simple things in life though just seeing my my son smile from from winning. You're a good dad, mate. I can tell that. Um, you're talking about Lincoln. What's he racing? Are you a nervous sort of dad on the sidelines? Are you in their hands and all? What are you doing? Oh, man, nervous. I tell you, I get more nervous <laughs> while he's on the starting grid than I am on the starting grid. That's absolutely true. Um, but, yeah, it's just cool. You know, I believe, you know, as we talked about earlier, my motocross years, I, I never had a father or a role model to kind of – you know, push me through racing. It was just my own dream. And I remember racing with kids that their fathers are yelling at them, screaming at them. And it was more like it was the father's dream for their kid to be a champion rather than the kid's dream to be a champion. And um, it's something I've, I learned then and something I remember now. So with Lincoln, it's as much as I've always wanted him to be a motocross champion or, or a champion of, of whatever, I've never pushed him into anything. He had a motocross bike at the age of two. Um, and he's never once said he wanted to race motocross. So he's never raced motocross. I've never pushed him into it, said, oh, we're going to go race your bike this weekend. Um, he discovered the trophy carts, so that's what he races. They're like a quarter-scale stadium truck. Um, Got to be the funnest toy. If, for, uh, he's been racing them since he's seven years old. Um, but funnest and super safe, you know. He, he, they have full roll cage, neck braces, all the safety gear, um, and they're fast. And making sure I've like done everything on the car, like putting myself in kind of that um, crew chief 
mindset mm. and making sure that the car is 100% and when something breaks down man I just feel so bad and it's just I guess it's motorsport and I've lost championships in the past because of just failure in the car um, and it's happened to Lincoln as well so um, but the biggest thing is just seeing his passion and want to race and when you see a Christmas list of Santa that has billet flywheels and bigger <laughs> carburetors and like yeah just all the beadlock wheels and all that stuff um, is pretty pretty cool as a father I knew you'd be in there uh, helping mechanically and that you you know how much you love that stuff you've been fiercely loyal to Mazda that's clear from this discussion mate your, your passion particularly for rotaries have you ever been tempted to go and you know when you've been and raced in the states and seen some of the other cars that have the, the muscle cars and things have you ever been tempted or that's just not you well, I mentioned before about like every year about the contracts that come to our table. And of course, as a driver, and this is my business, for our business, me and Tony as a family, and it's how I put food on the table for the kids. And and um, when you look at some of these contracts, for sure, we've definitely had some very attractive offers from different manufacturers over the years. And um, I don't know, it's just one of those things that you need to balance out. And for me, the passion that lied around Mazda has just been stronger than... Mm than sometimes the dollar figures that are on these contracts to sign. And uh, I believe in the partnerships as well we've formed over the years and um, that's that's more important as well than the money. And then now, you know, to turn those offers down and then now actually have the factory support from Mazda and, you know, I help live a healthy life and I'm able to do what I want to do with my kids and, and Tony. Um it really, I just, it, it all pays off, I guess. And man, the sound, the smell and adrenaline of racing rotaries for the fan base, there's just nothing beats it. Final one. I ask regularly in this series about grail cars and I can sense in you from your garage that with each project, you more or less build the next kind of grail car. But what is for, for fans that love what you do with the build of these machines and the things that you've created over time with all different models in the Mazda range. Is there a next project and, and what would you like it to be? Oh, there's always a next project. I think, like, to be honest, right now I'm working on, like, three different projects, <laughs> including, like, Lincoln's projects as well for his racing and then Jet, my daughter, she's two and a half, so she wants cars that she can beat Lincoln already. So I think she's going to be quite competitive when she's old. Well, she already is very competitive. Um... But no, I mean, yeah, there's always another hill climb or another championship. So there's, and the progression of the cars. And I think, like, I'm very fortunate to be in this position where we can build it with the power of social media um, and having Instagram and Facebook and having the fan base and being able to, you know, build these cars that are not just for myself, but it's for the fans. And I mean, even Project Red Bull, the MX-5, before we even built that for Formula Drift was literally, we got a MX-5 platform we put it out on Instagram and we did a fan fan vote. Do we turn it into a Mad Mike missile, which a missile is pretty much a beater car with mismatched panels and um, really just an absolute thrash car or turn it into a world championship car and take on the world's best Formula Drift. And that was a pure van, fan vote that went to the, for the Formula Drift, won the, won the vote poll and hence building a 1200 horsepower forward, a twin turbo, the most crazy thing that we could possibly think of. Um, so I know what's next um, and the fans will start getting leaked of bits and pieces 
um, as we do it. But that's all part of it, you know, and part of the social media and that leverage. It's it's great fun to be able to share my passion with my fans and be able to interact them and use some of their votes and their decisions as well. There is a great doco on in-flight at the moment. If you haven't seen it, check it out. It's called The Mad Life. You really do live it full throttle, mate, and it's been an honour to, to chat with you. Congrats on everything so far. Awesome, yeah. Thank you so much for the support and, um, yeah, the chance to be able to uh, have the chat and speak for the fans. Rusty's Garage is written and presented by me, Greg Rust. Series producer and editor is Alex Mitchell. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. Listener.